0: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 41.
1: This is Writing Excuses history. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry.
2: And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Howard.
3: I'm... Mahatab. I was going to say I'm Mary Robinette,
4: but I'm Mahatab. Mary Robinette couldn't be with us this month, this week. Um, Well, we're doing the Utah cast. We like to shake things up. Um, This week, we're going to talk about history. Actually, next week, we're going to do the genre of alternate history. We're going to talk a little about that. So we're going to try to veer away from that this time and focus on creating histories for your characters, for your secondary world fantasies or science fictions, or maybe extrapolating From our history right now to the future. Um, I just realized that given Mary's
1: known history as a voice actor, there's going to be a whole conspiracy fan theory that you really are Mary Robinette (laughs) doing an accent.
3: Possibly.
4: (laughs) We'll post pictures. That won't help. Mm. Um, All right. So let's talk about Secondary World fantasy Um, building histories for places that didn't exist. Yes. Are there any resources you use? How do you start? How do you give a sense that this place has been around a long time? Um, As a new writer, I'll just preface this by saying, this was really hard for me in my first books. Um, I always felt that this was a big hole in my world building, that a lot of the great epic fantasies I'd read, you know, you travel through Tolkien's world, and you get a sense that there are thousands of years of history At every turn and quarter. Where my Mm -hmm. worlds, it felt like they sprang up, you know, got (laughs) built as a set right before the story started. And then the characters acted them and then they were being wiped away after. Yeah. Um, Well, one of the things that
1: that Tolkien does, I mean, yes, he spent decades of his life building the world before he started writing in it. But beyond that, I think the much more reproducible trick is that everywhere he goes, people talk about history. And so he's kind of cheating in that sense. Uh, and so if your book doesn't focus on that, then you aren't going to have that sense. But, you know, when they go to Rivendell, when they go to, you know, even Lake Town, uh, they will talk about how, oh, this used to be this, and then this other thing happened. And so you you are kind of learning the history as you go. And so you can include those details without spending decades of your life building them in advance.
2: There are aspects to our world history that's... Uh that really fascinating to model yourself, model your work on. Um, if you compare European history with uh, uh, mainland Chinese history, um, there is there is a continuity to Chinese history uh, that none of the architecture, the, the Chinese people never walked up to a piece of architecture and said, where did this come from? But in the Middle Ages in Europe, after the fall of the Roman Empire, 200 years later, we had people looking at aqueducts, people who had no idea how to work stone in that way, looking at these things and saying, who built this? And so the European conceit, which I think may be a little closer to what Tolkien was writing, is this sense that uh, civilizations fall and some of them were greater than ours and, you know, we had, we had this thing we called the Renaissance, this rebirth. The Chinese didn't have a Renaissance. Uh, the Chinese had a much more linear uh, experience mm-hmm. through this. Knowing that when you are creating secondary world history for your world allows you to choose. Are my people going to have a contiguous history? Or is there going to have been a collapse and technology was lost, simple technologies, you know, stone working, metal working, whatever— And when it is rebuilt, there are ancient puzzles to be
1: solved. Yeah, and and that contiguous idea, the the more Chinese model, if we're going to call it that, can be fascinating, and I don't think it's done a lot. You know, if you've got 2,000 years of unbroken history, then this isn't just the little farm town where you live. This is the farm town where 20 generations of your family have lived.
3: I think even going to certain places that would be similar to your fantasy world would help. Um, for example, Diana Gabaldon, who's written the Outlander series, she was a great researcher. So she started writing the world based on her research from books, but then she eventually did go to Scotland and, you know, viewed the area before she actually wrote down the entire story. And there, there is a time travel involved, but there is a lot of history. So I think she did have a bit of it, but then a lot could be extrapolated. And the other one that I really love, who's done a Fabulous job, and I think you'll all know him, um, Patrick Rothfuss, with *Name of the Wind* and *Wiseman's Fear*. I mean, just the way we were given the history of the—is it Chandrian or Chandrian? I'm
4: not sure. I don't know. Nor am heard I. But him pronouncing the <laughs>
3: history and how it relates to Quoth and the revenge that he wanted to take for certain things—the way it is—it's built but we are given that information as needed at the right time that we need it in the story. I mean, if he had given all the information that is in the second book, in the first book, we would have probably been overwhelmed. But mm. it, the fact is that he's built it and he meets it out as required. But you, know. you get the feeling that it's, it's there. And I guess the way you do it is you probably allude to it, but if it is not um, uh, pertinent to the, point at, uh, to the plot at that point in time, let it go. Let let the reader just go along for the ride and explain it at the time when you need to.
4: Absolutely. I, I agree with that 100%. Uh, one of the themes I'm noticing here is having having reasons, though, to explain it. It works in Name of the Wind because the character is a storyteller and a bard. And his, you know, telling stories of the past is basically what the foundation of his his relationship with his parents was. And uh, with Tolkien, of course, there's a lot of lore and characters are very interested in the lore. Um, Mm -hmm. If this is something you want to do, having a reason, having a character who is interested in architecture, having a character who who wants to talk about these things and then making it relevant to the story, maybe not to the main plot, but to the story in some way is going to help a lot.
1: One of the other things that Tolkien is doing is he has a big cast of characters from lots of different backgrounds. So you have a chance for the Numenorian ranger and the man of Rohan to argue over which path they should take. And, you know, the dwarf has an opinion all his own, and they think the other opinion is dumb, and they will give historical reasons. And so you get lots of perspectives,
4: which allows you to explain more of what's going on. I think this is a very natural thing. That human beings do. We like to talk about the past. We would like to talk about our heritage. Uh, I remember just visiting Charleston for the first time when I was out there uh, to work on the Wheel of Time books and how multiple people told me we have houses that still have musket balls in them. Uh, from the the Civil War, right? Like, you can go and see there's a hole, there's a musket ball in there that was fired Mm -hmm. during the Civil War. And that is, like, a very big mark of pride, and I found it fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Being from the West, where everything is a little more new, um, I love that aspect. And I think it's, like I said, it's very natural. Um, And those little details, we often talk about how the little details evoke a large picture and a larger story. Um, I tell my students, you know, there's this philosophy... Then in writing, you want to um, only show the tip of the iceberg and then have all of this world-building stuff you've done that's underneath the water that is supporting it. And I tell them that really what you want to do is you want to be able to fool the reader into thinking there's an entire iceberg down there. I'm going Um, to build a little pile of ice on an
2: ocean-colored rubber raft, (laughs) and I'm going to float it, and I'm (laughs) going to use smoke and mirrors to make you not look at the raft.
4: Yep. Yeah. And see an iceberg instead
1: <laughs> well, underneath. And if if you want to compare this to, to visual art, if, if someone wants to suggest depth, you know, you've all seen the pictures of like chalk drawings on the sidewalk that look like you're standing over a giant cliff. They're just using little tricks of perspective. And so it's the same amount of total chalk, but it looks like it goes down for hundreds and hundreds of feet. And so you can do that same kind of verbal perspective, I guess, and and do add little tricks into your book like, mentioning, you know, the the ancient king that used to run this, or when you give the name of the city, explain where that name came from, without having to build those hundreds of feet underneath it, you're just giving the sense of it.
3: What I also like, which George R. 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 Martin also did, was he was so specific about certain things. um, I mean, almost going to a depth that I didn't need, but that somehow gave me the impression that he knows so much. He he could have, like, mm-hmm. you know, just maybe uh, the Lannisters' flag and what they believe in, the Lannisters pay their debts. And on certain aspects, he drilled down, like, on the houses so deep that it just gave me the impression that he knows a lot. Yes. Which without, he may not know a lot, but that is, uh, and I'm like, how on earth has he done this? Because my impression in my mind is, He knows everything. If he knows so much about one house, he -hmm. probably knows so much about everyone. And one of the
1: reasons that that works so well is because it's a house. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as, it doesn't sound as important as, you you know, if he he were to give the entire history of the geography or, you know, whatever. This is Mm -hmm. how this land was formed volcanically. Mm -hmm. And so giving details, tons and tons of detail on something that isn't necessarily as important, then we go, oh, well, if he knows all this stuff about this one little thing— I bet he knows everything. Our book of the week this week is Airborne.
3: Mm -hmm. So this is one of my favorite books by a very um, uh, well-loved Canadian author. His name is Kenneth Opal. And uh, so there are three books in the series. The first one is Airborne, which was the Governor General winner for 2004. The other books are Star Climber and Skybreaker. So this is a a, a book that's set in an alternate history, of course, Victorian era, where a a lot of airships were used for transportation. And the story starts with a cabin boy called Matt Cruz, um, who has lost his father, but he's really dying to be a pilot. But he comes from the poor classes who... Chances of becoming a pilot are are hard, um, but it's it's got a lot of, of fantasy elements in it, and it starts out with him rescuing this uh, uh, this person in a balloon, and um, the the person actually dies, but he leaves a notebook behind, which is handed over to his family, and then three years later, he's on this transoceanic uh, cruise ship, which is called the Aurora. And one of the passengers is Kate DeVries, which is basically his love interest, uh, who has that same um, notebook of the person that he had rescued, which talks about uh, cloud cats. Now, this is in the Victorian era, which was mainly a very male dominated society. And Kate is very forward thinking and she wants to go find them. So uh, there is this adventure going on where they are attacked by pirates, Uh, they crash land on an island. They do see the cloud cats. Spoiler alert, sorry about that. But And then it, it it ends on a fabulously dramatic note of them rescuing the ship and he being promoted. This is Matt Cruz. Um, and of course, his adventures continue with him falling in and out of love with Kate, uh, Kate DeVries, who I love. But it's the language, it's the pacing. Kenneth Opel is just amazing with his plotting, his pacing, and he's run, done a lot of middle grade and YA, but this is one of... His finest. So airborne Kenneth Opal.
4: Excellent.
1: Cool. Thank you, Mary Robinette, from that. Oh, I mean let's let's <laughs> edit that out. Mahatab. Mahatab. Oh.
2: This is
4: totally Mahatab. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, for the second half of this podcast, um, or the few minutes of the second half we have left, let's talk about character histories. How do you develop what the history of a given character is before they walk on screen for their first scene? How do you keep track of those notes? How much do you pants? How much do you plan? These days
2: I have a, uh, a continuity spreadsheet which pins events in my universe and who was affected by those events. And when somebody is walking on screen, the first thing I do is I look at the spreadsheet and ask myself, where were they when these things are happening? Do I need to worry about it? And if the answer is no, Awesome. They walk on screen with whatever information I needed to motivate them for that scene. Uh, But if their paths crossed any of those points in the spreadsheet, um, I have to do more work, and usually that just means I'm not going to put them in the book.
1: (laughs) Um. You know, writing so much YA has been nice because the characters don't have a lot of history. (laughs) You know?
3: (laughs) They're much younger. She's
1: 16 years old, and, you know, maybe there's one or two formative experiences that i have to deal with but uh in in writing for adults when i actually have to do this i often will just make it up i mean i tend to be very pansory anyway but if there is you know if there's something that relates directly to the plot then i'll already know it and if it doesn't then it can be whatever i want it to be
3: Um, I actually like to fill up a character worksheet. And depending on whether it's middle grade or YA, I'll have a slightly longer worksheet. Now, some of it is just dealing with the physical appearance, but a lot is to deal, uh, deals with, you know, the character's motivations. What do they want? What do they need? um, Any secrets that they have? um, You know, just, just build up on that. That's just a starting point. I honestly do not get to know my characters till probably the second or third draft. This is just me putting some stuff down on paper, but it's a starting point just so that I can visualize the character. And then as I'm writing the story, stuff occurs to me. So the character worksheet is a starting point. And probably in the second or third draft is when I really get to know the character. But I have to say, honestly, they've never talked back to me or they've not never taken over the story. It's like sometimes, most times, you know, it's like talking to a teen, you know, uh, pulling words out of their mouth. It's <laughs> like, how did you do today? To yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's a, it's a work in progress. But as you yeah. do more drafts, you get, a, get to know them and then start building on the areas that you think the story needs the history on.
2: As I've, as I've gotten older and learned more, uh, one of the things that I've learned is that it's not just that history is written by the victors, it's that history is read and interpreted Differently, depending on who's teaching it, depending on who's reading it. And nothing makes history in a secondary world feel more real than people having different opinions of the same event. And maybe they are both right. Um, and especially if the event impacted one or more of these characters. Uh, some of my favorite moments in tracking characters through these spreadsheets or when I realized both uh, Alexia Murtaugh and Carl Tagon fought in the same war, briefly on opposite sides. And at one point, they probably both knew the same person. And out of that grew the bonus story that I put into uh, Schlock Mercenary Book 14, um, which is the two of them talking about this guy who died during the war and Captain Murtaugh talks about how he's the reason she was able to switch sides. And and so it was this intersection of my spreadsheet of history and personal backstories that the story almost told itself. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. My part told itself. Uh, ben McSweeney <laughs> had to do all the art, so. Dan, you have our homework this
4: week.
1: Yes, I do. So... What we want you to do is come up with the history of a place. Take like a thousand years worth of history. What wars were fought there? What people lived there? You know, all of these things that happened in this one location. But then tell that story from the point of view of a tree that has lived that whole time and watched this all happen.
4: Excellent. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write.
0: Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of